0: Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Midsummer 2023 has been a time that has rewritten Marx's dictum about history repeating itself first as tragedy, then as farce. No, the second time around it is still tragedy, Karl. Riots in the Bonlieu, the concrete suburban communities of France where immigrant families have been housed for decades. The Israeli army making incursions into Janine, the city that has grown out of a refugee camp in the West Bank, are just two stories that have erupted in recent weeks that, one way or another... I and my guest on this podcast, Robin Lustig, have covered over the last three or four decades in Robin's case, in a distinguished career for first the Observer newspaper and then his three decades as the presenter host of BBC Radio four's The World Tonight and the World Services News hour. Robin Lustig is the man I go to for perspective on current events. But before our conversation begins, a reminder, FRDH is entirely self-funded, so please visit the website goldfarbpod.com and make a donation so I can keep the podcasts coming. Now, I began my conversation with Robin Lustig by asking if he had the same feeling I have had the last few weeks, that after tragedies burst into the news nothing about their causes ever gets fixed.
1: I do, but I also feel sometimes quite tempted to conclude that nothing ever changes either, which is a very depressing thought. I mean, we we know that the world is not a perfect place. We know that there are millions and millions of unhappy people around the world and that every so often that that unhappiness explodes into anger and violence and so on. There are places where things have improved. I mean, I'm always try to remind myself that, for example, in India and in China, two most populous countries in the world, um, millions and millions of people whose parents lived in abject poverty are now themselves not living in abject poverty. That is a plus. Uh, I try to remind myself every so often that, that Uh, particularly in the poorest countries of the world. Millions and millions of women do not die in childbirth. Their babies do not die within weeks or months of having been born. These are all pluses. But as you say, you then look at the banlieue in Paris. You look at the Palestinian refugee camps in the West Bank, and it's really hard to conclude that anything has got better there. I am persuaded by some of the stuff I've read recently recently, from Paris, that in fact, in some of the suburbs around Paris, things have improved. And I think it is notable that the riots, if that's what we want to call them, did only last, only in inverted commas, a few days, and did very largely consist only, again, only in inverted commas, uh, of teenage boys. They were not joined as they were in the 1960s, for example, when France really was on the brink of revolution by uh, workers and others who decided that the French state was not providing what they wanted. But, um, yeah, I mean, I guess we as journalists always are drawn to the worst things that are going on around the world, but there are a lot of them about, aren't there?
0: Yeah. Well, since we're talking about Paris, it's a little-known fact, but in 2005 I was briefly almost going to move to Los Angeles to work for a public radio station there called KCRW. And I did a week filling in for someone on his daily news program. And while I was there, this was October 2005, was the last big riot explosion in France. and And the causes, roughly the same, aggressive policing, a lot of young men with no jobs to go to and not too bothered about actually attending high school and you had riot after riot and as the current round unfolded and has now seemed to die down i just was reminded it was 18 years ago Mm -hmm. what do you think the dynamics are that bring rioting back into a possibility because we've covered riots in a lot of different countries reported on them i mean why they're hopeless you know they are not revolutions they aren't even expressions of revolutionary energy they're just hopeless expressions and i wonder why in some areas they just keep coming back do you have any idea
1: i i mean i'm i'm of a generation whose political coming of age was in the 1960s And one of the things I remember most vividly from the 1960s is what were then called race riots in several US cities, Los Angeles among them. And it seems to me, watching the pictures from uh, the suburbs of Paris, or indeed even the Palestinian refugee camps, the pictures are not dissimilar. You see young people who are so convinced that they have no voice, that the only thing that is left for them to do is wreak havoc on the communities in which they live. And they do that in full view of the TV cameras, and they destroy their own communities, they destroy the shops, they destroy the schools, they destroy the police stations, because it's the only way they have of expressing their anger and their Fury that nobody is listening to them, and nobody's taking any notice of them, it is as I say intensely depressing that we don't seem to have found a way somehow in what's the word, you know what what we fondly refer to as liberal democracies of giving expression to people who do grow up either in poverty or on the fringes of poverty, who do suffer uh racial discrimination, who do suffer from very little genuine hope that they are going to be able to live fruitful and satisfying lives. And for, for many people, that that really hasn't changed. I was thinking, you know, Michael, the, the people in the Janine refugee camp, if you or I were to meet, let's say, an 80-year-old man in that camp, who probably, well, he would have been about 10 years old at the time of the establishment of Israel, when his family would have fled from their homes and uh, first become refugees. That 80-year-old man would now have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all of whom have grown up in a refugee camp. That's four generations of people who have grown up and lived their lives without a home to call their own. And that's an appalling situation. No wonder they turn to violence. No wonder they are full of hatred and despair and a conviction that life has very little to offer them. So they go out, they risk being shot in the head by an Israeli soldier. So what? You know, that that if if that's what God wishes for them, that's what will happen.
0: You know, it's, I, I do wonder if there's a generational element in this. 2005, 2023. Okay, so that's mm. 18. Mm. And i i wonder sometimes you're an 18 to 25 year old you go out and riot you destroy your community the heat dies down you're left in the mess and then you know you you keep living you end up starting a family and you tell your children that it was a waste it didn't accomplish anything Mm -hmm. but then you get to a certain age and there's an there are even younger kids coming along mm-hmm. and they look at you when they're 18 and they say you're an old, you're just an old man now. A lot of the sort of crime that we are talking about is overwhelmingly
1: committed by teenage males who suffer an excess of testosterone, who do suffer an excess of aggression. And if there is no outlet for that aggression and for that anger then it turns into what we are discussing, unrest on the streets, destruction.
0: Hmm. Have you
1: ever been to Janine? I have, but a long time ago. um, I've been to several other Palestinian refugee camps, uh, particularly in Gaza, and they are some of the saddest places you are ever going to find. The, The odd thing about them is that they don't, on the surface, look that different from any other Impoverished town in the Arab world, uh, half-built concrete dwellings, overcrowded, um, huge amounts of illegal uh, electric wiring, providing both power and telephone signals. I mean, probably not anymore now that everybody's got mobile phones. But nevertheless, I mean, it, it, it's not tents. That's the thing. People hear the word camp and they think tents. Uh, with a very few exceptions, Um, Syrian camps in Jordan, for example, there aren't tents, but uh, they have been there for a very long time. As I say, I mean, they've been there for 60 or 70 years, some of them. And so they are towns, but they are unofficial, illegal dwelling places, a bit like townships in apartheid South Africa. And they are full of violence, full of poverty, full of anger, and very, very difficult and unpleasant places.
0: Well, you, you lived in Israel for a while. You, you were based there as a correspondent. I was.
1: I was based there in the 1980s, which now does seem a very long time ago. But it was already possible even then to see the beginnings of what became known as the Intifada, the uprising. Because it comes back to this thing about people not having a voice. If 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 you don't give people, whether it's a whole community of people like the Palestinians or a particular generation like teenage boys, a voice if you don't listen to them, if you can't persuade them that their concerns, their needs are being heard and addressed, then what what are they going to do? How are they going to attract your attention? I'm thinking back to the unrest we had in the UK in the 1980s and 1990s in places like Liverpool and Bristol. Um, they did actually result in changes to government policy There's an awful thing which we Democrats don't like to admit, which is that violent unrest does actually work. It does force governments to pay attention. It does result in the settings up of commissions of inquiry or whatever it might be. And in some cases, at least, it does actually result in a change of policy. Liverpool is a very different city now to what it was 30 or 40 years ago. Um, Similarly, parts of Bristol, similarly Glasgow, for example, uh, the East End of London, all kinds of places where there was a lot of anger and a lot of poverty have improved immeasurably. But in part, I would argue, and, you know, whisper it softly, it's because people rose up.
0: Yeah, but, you know, I'm I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, because the last time people rose up was in my neighborhood in, in North London. There were riots in Hackney. And riots in Tottenham, about 2011, 12, I can't remember the precise year, mm-hmm. uh, a young Afro-Caribbean man was shot dead by the police. He was allegedly dealing drugs. He had a gun. There, The whole cer- set of circumstances inevitably were was muddied. I still don't know what the real truth was. And there were riots in Tottenham. And then two or three days later they spread they leapt over the gentrified part of Hackney in which I live and landed in public housing council estates a few miles south and Mm. it happened people were arrested they were sent to prison and then it was over and it was much more like the Bonne kind of situation in Paris no change came out of it I mean things just carried on and I think (sighs) and, and You know, in the 1980s, one of the big differences, of course, is that it was um, Margaret Thatcher's government. But within Margaret Thatcher's government, there was a kind of centrist voice, and that voice was empowered at the cabinet table to do something. And so Michael Heseltine went to Liverpool. I mean, okay, you've rioted, you've done all these things. I'm going to go see what what this is about, and he came back and said, "My God, mm-hmm. it's disaster up there." And they did begin to bring in money, and and this was carried on even after Margaret Thatcher was deposed, and and carried on into into the Blair administration. And and you're right, they've improved the city immeasurably, but that I think is actually an unusual event it's a nice circumstance that you know you have a conservative government and within the conservative government you actually have a fairly humane man who is willing to to sit down and hear people's grievances out once the yeah, fires yeah i, I, are I put get out.
1: that look i i i don't want to sound pollyanna-ish i don't want to sort of give the impression that that, that, that one riot changes the world but for example i live very close to uh, a, a council estate called broadwater farm where similarly there was an explosion of anger uh, by young black Londoners uh, many years ago arising out of police violence. I have been to Broadwater Farm not that long ago and it has changed beyond recognition. There is a huge park nearby which has had a lot of money spent on it. It is a beautiful place with lots of things for kids to do. Attention was drawn to a corner of this capital city of ours, uh, which had suffered for decades from a lack of attention. I, I don't say that every riot, you know, solves the world's problems, but I do understand why kids and sometimes even community leaders do take the view that out of an explosion of violence comes a change of policy, comes a bit of extra funding, comes let, let's also be honest Michael I mean the style of London policing imperfect though it still is is hugely different now from what it was 30 or 40 years ago, particularly as a result uh, as regards young black kids. So there are changes I'm I'm not I'm not a rioter, I have never been a rioter. I would never be a rioter but I do I think understand why kids of a certain from out of out of certain communities, do feel that they have nothing to lose and possibly something to gain by going out and creating mayhem.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I I I've covered riots. I I, I used to go to the. They were so ritualized in Northern Ireland mm-hmm. that I you used to get handbills. People would say we're we're going to have a riot tonight on Sandy Row, which is behind the <laughs> the Europa Hotel, the most bombed hotel, and and you'd go and there'd be a riot and and I'd take my recording equipment and. I can remember the police looking at me, as I held my microphone as close as I dared to a burning tire, so, so I could get the crackling sound of, of you know as, as a sound effect of flames snapping in the in the Northern Irish evening. The things breeze. you do as a radio reporter. Huh? And I, I remember the cops looking at me like, "Who is this maniac?" I, I waved my microphone at them. Sorry, guys. Um, it can become ritualized, and yes, things- it can. Let's continue this thought about how riots do occasionally push things along. Because I've just come back from uh, 10 days traveling in Israel and Egypt, because I'm making something to mark the 50th anniversary of the October 1973 war, the Yom Kippur War. And I was talking to someone who had spent time with Yitzhak Rabin, who was prime minister of Israel in the 1980s and the intifada had been going on the first intifada for a while and the images coming out of israel were very distressing there was one infamous one of you know a a 14 or 15 year old boy having his arm broken with stones because he'd been throwing stones at israeli troops and some israeli soldiers grabbed him and they took the stones he was throwing and they broke his arm and the world's press was watching and and there was there were terrible pictures somebody asked uh rabin or told me the story that why did you go to oslo rabin said i got tired of breaking bones Mm -hmm. and i and that's an example of how people who seem to have no power coming out and risking their lives can affect change but I don't think that was the intention of the first interroga to get Yitzhak Rabin to change his mind, and this, of course, having done so, led to Oslo, and then eventually yeah, Rabin's assassination. Yeah. But that's a different story. But,
1: but but listen, Michael, do you think that the Oslo process,
0: uh, even though it
1: didn't last very long, but it did for a time, result in real? Hope that maybe the Israel-Palestine issue was on the way to being resolved. Do you think that would have happened had it not been for the first Intifada, for the Palestinian uprising?
0: Not at all. No, I mean the the, the Intifada reminded very forcefully the Israeli ruling elites that you know you you simply can't maintain this occupation and hope to have some kind of you know peaceful situation in your own territory the occupied territories needed to be discussed and the people who lived there needed to be negotiated with through their representatives
1: yes yeah yeah and so that you you get this chant which you hear many times uh, in in riots in different parts of the world and from different communities no peace without justice and if you have a group of people who over in many cases, decades, generations, uh, feel that they have not been treated fairly or properly or that justice has not been available to them, then they will rise up and they will say to the ruling elite, to the majority community, you will not be able to sleep peacefully in your beds, you will not be able to go about your business uh, peacefully until there is justice for us. And what you get from these riots is a periodic reminder that people uh, who see themselves as living on the fringes of society do exist, that they do have needs, uh, they do have the same kind of rights, or they should have the same kind of rights as everybody else. And the only way they have, they think at least, of expressing their anger is by picking up stones or Molotov cocktails or hurling bricks through shop
0: windows. But the other thing about this is let's assume that it's not really the intention the, riots rarely have intentionality unless you live in a highly ideological society where you know you have a, a an agent at the back of the crowd sort of urging people to violence to advance a very specific political cause these are often expressions as you've been saying you know of human despair And a demand for something better, which is a perfectly reasonable demand, but politically pretty incoherent. I want a better life is not a political program. And what's interesting is that then the governing classes will often come in and spread money around and try and damp down the fire. And often all it does is freeze things in a kind of aspic. Yeah. When I w- know, w-
1: without actually resolving a lot of the fundamental
0: issues, the NGOization, for example, of the West Bank, in particular, <laughs> I mean <clears throat> you, you're aware of it, and and yep. around the time the second intifada began, you know, I spent some time in Ramallah. This is going back more than twenty years now, yes. and I was just stunned at how little real economic development there had been and a lot of the money that was poured in by particularly the european union all it did was create an ngoization of life there if you reasonably bright and well connected you could work for an ngo or you get funding for an ngo to work with disaffected youth it doesn't solve the basic problems of the conflict and that may be another reason why people come pouring out every 10-15 years Well, that comes back to the
1: quote that you just used from Yitzhak Rabin, who said he got tired of breaking bones. These kinds of conflicts or these kinds of injustices really, I think, only uh, become resolvable when uh, the governing structure understands that real change is required. I mean, as, as a Democrat, what I've struggled with all my adult life is the belief that one of the shortcomings of the democratic model is that it doesn't really address the needs of minorities or the needs of those people who lose elections or who don't take part in elections. It's very, very good for those people who are on the winning side. So the people who do vote, the people who do have steady jobs and all of that. But the people on the margins don't get a lot out of democracy unless they can somehow engage with the political structure. And this is the challenge, I think, for our times, is to encourage people to engage with the political structure and use the existing political mechanisms uh, to improve their community's lot. Uh, It's hard to do. I'm not sure that with... I mean, there are some small uh, examples of that having worked, but on a larger scale, it's very rarely worked. Uh, because it's very, very difficult to do. And I think the atomization of society and the growth of what what I think is now called identitarianism, where your um, political identity and your human identity is is sliced so finely that you're persuaded that you have very little in common with people who may even just live around the corner, but have different color hair to you or different tastes in music or whatever it might be. Um I I think that does not act in the best interests of people who need to engage much more. I sound like a real real old socialist now, but they need to act collectively. They need to see what they have in common with the people living around them, not
0: how they differ. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is I I I was in Israel and it was a Saturday night. So I went out for the 26th Saturday in a row. A cross section of Israeli society has come out and protested against the, the the government of Benjamin Netanyahu and its attempt mm-hmm. to neuter the independence of Israeli courts, which in that country where there isn't a real written constitution, there is no check on executive power. There isn't an upper chamber. Uh, so the courts are the only block on executive power grabs. And for a variety of reasons, Netanyahu wants to neuter the courts, not least his own personal jeopardy, because he's accused of things and is has cases before the courts. Yeah. And a real cross-section of Israeli society comes out every Saturday night. And I was working the, the edge of the crowd and just chatting with people. And I saw a guy standing on his own waving an Israeli flag. They all wave Israeli flags. The most interesting thing is that, you know, these are you'd think they're all kind of lefties, but they're not. Mm. And they have seized back the the prime symbol of patriotism, which is the country's flag. And, you know, it doesn't belong to the Likud party. It doesn't belong to the supporters of Netanyahu. The flag is for all of us. It's our country Mm -hmm. too. Okay. So I'm talking to this guy late 50s pretty hard looking fella clearly someone who's done time in the military and he was standing alone which was unusual so i start chatting with him and i asked him about whether he'd served because obviously it looked like he, he might still even be in the military and he, he right. wasn't but he had served in lebanon in the early 80s that had been his war israelis speak in terms of this was my war people our age robin say 1973 this is our war yep. people who yep. are 80 say 1967 this was our war you know that kind of thing so his war was uh the lebanon incursion in 1982 and i i asked him i said why are you out here and he said we've lost touch with our principles he spoke reasonable english but he had to take time to find the words and he said, principle is a very good word. So I said, that's a very, and I told him so. And, and then I said, you don't look like you are a labor voter. He said, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm right wing. And, and I said, Likud. And he said, much further right than Likud. But he <laughs> was out there with the others. I mean, there's a, there's a platform every week for the generals, people who served at, you know, on the general staff to make speeches and it's quite an extraordinary sight and while and then two days later the army goes into janine and you think it's such a small place and yet there's this repeat we're going to go into janine we did it 15 years ago we're going to do it again 10 years you get the sense that 10 years from now they'll go into janine and at the same time On the streets of Tel Aviv and now in Jerusalem, people come out to demand, one, that the government don't go through with its program. They're not trying to bring down the government, but they're just trying to stop them, you know, neutering the justice system so that there can be some semblance of democracy in Israel.
1: Sure. But there is a big difference, isn't there, between the kind of protest that you're describing and that you witnessed and the kind of protests that Palestinians from the Janine refugee camp and elsewhere indulge in. And the difference, I think, is that the people that you were talking to, uh, waving the Israeli flags, do believe that they have a voice in the Israeli political structure, that they, if they come out in sufficient numbers and not uh, throw bricks through shop windows or Molotov cocktails at the police, uh, that they will be heard and that there is a chance at least Uh, that their views will be taken account of. I happened to be in Israel at the time of the last major Janine incursion by the Israeli military in 2002, which in many respects was even more violent than what we have just seen. I mean, something like 50 Palestinians were killed at that time, and 23 Israeli soldiers were killed. Now, in Israeli terms, that is a very high death toll. Uh, because the Israelis are not accustomed to suffering losses on that scale. So it does go in circles. I've just been watching a documentary series on um, British television called Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland, which is a look back at the 30 years of troubles, so-called, in Northern Ireland, just by interviewing people who were directly involved in them on both sides of the conflict. And it's an extraordinary reminder of how sectarian divisions can become so deeply, deeply ingrained. I mean, in the case of Northern Ireland, over a period of something like 300 years, the people do the most appalling things to each other. And it becomes, it becomes somehow accepted, it becomes normalised. I remember one occasion, just uh, a year after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement uh, in Northern Ireland, which brought an end to the troubles, more or less, Uh, talking to a young man. And I said, so how has it been over the last year being able to live a normal life? And he said, well, what you have to understand is that for me, this isn't a normal life. For me, what was normal was what went before, was the violence, the bombings, the murders. And that stuck with me because, of course, for a whole generation in Northern Ireland, and if we're talking about Israel-Palestine, for several generations, violence has been the norm. And it's difficult, I think, for us who live in, you know, wonderful, peaceful UK, some somehow to understand that for generations of people waking up and not knowing whether you, your parents, your family will see the end of the day is normal everyday life.
0: That takes me back to what I was saying earlier about you get to be 18 and and you've heard stories and some of them shine with heroism mm-hmm. about we cornered this cop and we beat him to the ground or we set this on this place on fire that was owned by this racist. And those stories will circulate in the nor- in this world of normalized violence and deprivation. Exactly. And eventually a critical mass of young people will have heard these stories and say, I want some of that. It doesn't sound like such a terrible thing to me. More recently in Northern Ireland, the government, uh, which had been devolved back, has collapsed because they can't agree on what time to have coffee, typically. And when this first happened three or four years ago, I think just before COVID, I remember watching on the news and seeing a kid, 17 or 18 years old, who was out marching and had thrown rocks at the cops or something and he was being interviewed on television and you could almost hear the nostalgia in his voice yes that he had missed out on the good old days Yeah, had, the exciting days the exciting you know who knows maybe that is an excellent series on the bbc by the way and, and i don't know if people outside of the uk will be able to access it i'm sure the bbc is selling it on to some streaming service yeah highly uh, recommended. it it it's exceptional and and you there's a one of the central characters in the early bit is a fellow who became a protestant paramilitary and and went to prison and freely admits you know that he killed catholics and he's full of remorse it's a compelling compelling sequence of interviews with him you could almost envision him in a pub in belfast he's belfast where he's from and you can almost sense that the 18 year olds who hear these stories still circulating would say god i missed out on a good time Mm -hmm. and you think yes it's a perverse thing to think but this is how these things are sustained the balkans right now which and they never get in the news but bosnia which was a terrible terrible civil war yes There was a peace agreement, more or less, imposed from the outside on the warring parties. And the Dayton Agreement, which is a kind of precursor to the Good Friday Agreement, the Dayton Agreement, all it did was freeze the conflict. That's right. It didn't end it. It didn't create peace. It created essentially two entities. And there's constant niggle in, in the Balkans. 20-year-old men who missed out on the But interestingly,
1: you know, you could say the same about the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. It did freeze the conflict, but there are still deep, deep divisions. I mean, I'm sure you've been to Belfast both during the Troubles and since. Belfast's a lot better now than it was, but there are still walls separating the two communities. I sometimes think about what 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 are called frozen conflicts, conflicts which have come to an end, but which haven't been resolved. You quite rightly point to Bosnia. As I say, I think Northern Ireland is another one. I wonder sometimes whether Ukraine, Russia is heading in the same direction, a conflict which at the moment is a, a, a bloody violent conflict, but which one day may end with neither side having won and neither side having lost. And that is the way of different conflicts. Look at Korea, look at Cyprus, uh, look at a number of other places where there were wars, where there are now no longer wars, but where the root causes of the violence still exist and where no lasting agreement has been reached. I you know, I try to be an optimist, as, as I think you know, Michael, but so I, I will point to Northern Ireland as an example of how you can bring violence to an end, imperfectly, and with great difficulty. Uh, And so when people talk about Israel-Palestine as being, you know, an irresolvable, permanent conflict, I say it it took 300 years in Northern Ireland. Uh, Let's hope it doesn't take that long in Israel-Palestine, but it might take quite a bit longer. Uh, The same in Ukraine, the same in Bosnia, the same in so many other places, where there are unresolved conflicts but where at least people aren't killing each other at least not on the scale
0: that they were in the past the by the way i haven't been back to northern ireland since the oma bombing and hmm. and and i'm very clear that it, it, it that was traumatic for me i hmm. i had spent an enormous amount of the 1990s in the north you know was, i'm jewish obviously but it was it was a conflict that i i got my teeth into it was something that uh, engaged my brain seriously and i'd been so enthused by good friday and i'd seen met so many interesting people and people who had gone on an extraordinary journey like martin mcginnis who had been you know a genuine revolutionary terrorist yes and had because for whatever reason the british state never killed him managed to live a life and come out the other side as as a genuinely remorseful human being who wanted to do better for his part of the world. And so they've signed the Good Friday Agreement, and two months later, they blow up the center of this market town, an IRA splinter group, they do nothing but kill mostly women and children out shopping for school uniforms. That's right. And I snuck into the first funeral. They were keeping the press sequestered. But, you know, by then I, I knew how to get around the police lines with a bit of banter. And I, I, it just broke my heart. And I, I've never wanted to go back. It's strange. I've been back to Bosnia. And that's not a problem. But there's something about Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was an aside. The Ukraine situation, I think, is, is a perfect example of how the bloodshed will come to an end because for the same reason that the balkans came bosnia came to an end ultimately war is exhausting it's exhausting to the soldiers it's even more exhausting to the people on the home front who may start out saying "We, we can survive my you know our sons and fathers are at the front we can suffer if they're suffering but then eventually everybody just gets exhausted and at this moment i think it's pretty clear that Crimea is the objective, and you you brought up Korea, and you can see some kind of DMZ being created in the Donbas and Luhansk, which have been reduced basically to rubble, covered in landmines. You know, why not? But- I got very close at one time to
1: uh, a senior Israeli official who was intimately involved in the Oslo peace process, and uh, very much uh, part of that era of Israeli politics. And I had a conversation with him when the Oslo process was beginning to break down. And I said, so, you know, if this isn't the answer, what is? And he said, well, this won't end until we on both sides get tired of killing each other's children. And I think that probably applies to pretty much every conflict that you care to look at, at some point, adults do get tired of sending their children into battle, of killing each other's children, and of living that kind of life. But it can take a very, very long time.
0: Unfortunately, there's still time left, I fear, in the Ukraine I conflict. Um, among among the events of this month is a woman I interviewed last year for radio four program i made uh, an author highly regarded young novelist stopped writing fiction as soon as the war as soon as the first atrocities became clear and the the russians have been committing atrocities since the beginning and she became a war crimes investigator put everything aside and Mm -hmm. she was killed in a russian attack on a pizza parlor in kramatorsk the only rocket of the day went on this to this pizza parlor when she was there which makes me think she was kind of targeted like marie colvin was targeted in Homs by the syrian russian regime there so i i feel there's still a lot a long way to go in terms of the resentments and the hatreds that have been that were always there by the way i mean this is one of the things that Perhaps we haven't been as clear in the West as we could have been in reporting it that, you know, Ukrainian identity, which kind of was able to start bubbling forth after the collapse of the Soviet Union and fully asserted itself when the children, people who were in kindergarten that year, got to their late 20s and early 30s and overthrew the existing government with the Maidan revolution. And that's what started all of this. That was in 2014. And I just get the sense there's a bit more to go. Don't you think, though,
1: that... Sorry to interrupt you. Don't you think, though, that also... I mean, if we're trying to draw parallels between different conflicts around the world, something that Ukraine now has in common with, let us say, the, 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 the civil war that raged in Lebanon in the 1980s and 90s, the civil war that raged in Syria more recently is that they, that they risk becoming, or they do become, proxy wars for other powers. And a war is waged on their land between others. So in Ukraine, you have Russia, in many senses, now waging war against the combined might of Western stroke NATO material and money. In the Syrian civil war, as you say, the Russians, also the Iranians came in on one side and Western powers and Turkey and the Saudis came in on other sides. In Lebanon, you had Israel and Syria waging war. This complicates things because then it doesn't only involve the directly warring parties, but it involves other powers who aren't actually sending their children to kill or to die often but who nevertheless see their kind of geopolitical uh, aims somehow uh, at stake there. So perhaps one of the reasons why so many of these conflicts are so difficult to resolve is that they are so complex. And one of the things I think we're really bad at as reporters uh, is to come to grips with the complexities and often to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. I, I do sometimes wonder whether our insistence on getting up close and seeing exactly what's happening on the battlefield, important though that is, I think we we do need to know what war looks like because it's really, really horrible. Uh, we also need to look at bigger pictures and and that, that needs uh, old people like you <laughs> and me to sit back and say, well, I remember when, and we've read a bit of history, and we've looked at the geopolitical picture and uh, there's a lot more going on than two armies or two groups of armed men uh, shooting at each other across muddy fields.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. It's really a problem, though, because broadcast journalism doesn't always allow for that. When when the running order says you've got three minutes to explain.
1: <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really,
0: you know, I, I remember once demanding an extra 15 seconds to explain (laughs) why npr listeners should care about drum cree the Mm. the site of of a an annual march uh, by the orange order and always protested by local catholics and you think i'm begging for 15 seconds 15 seconds and the absurdity of what you can say in 15 seconds i mean but it seemed you know you can even get a bit of context in that way but you're right robin often the the fighting is what we concentrate on and the deeper questions and you know people also have to be willing to pay attention either read lengthy articles and increasingly i get the sense if you can't say it in a tweet, then it, it's not worth saying. It's a terrible place for society to get to. Um, it is, but
1: the, but then the other side of that picture, Michael, is that there is an appetite for broader discussions. There, there is an appetite for longer essays, for conversations of this kind. Um, we know that, okay, it may be a, a smaller group of people, but there are people who want and who need a greater understanding. I used to write a blog, which I called Trying to Make Sense of the World, because that's what I spent my career trying to do. And I'm absolutely convinced that there are quite a lot of other people who would love to be able to make sense of the world, because it is very, very complicated. And the more we know about it, thanks to the glories of the internet and social media and all the rest of it, the more I think we come to understand how little we know And that's one of the paradoxes of the information age we now live in. We have access to huge amounts of information, but it doesn't automatically lead to greater understanding. It could, and it should, but as you say, a a tweet or a thread now uh, doesn't doesn't really do it. I remember talking to a guy, an American correspondent, during the US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, who was one of the embedded correspondents with U.S. forces. And he was uh, driving up with the U.S. military uh, in Iraq towards Baghdad. And I asked him to describe what it was like and what he'd been able to see and learn. And he said, you know, Robin, being an embedded reporter is a bit like observing a war through a letterbox. You can see what's directly in front of you, but you can't see what's to either side of you or what's behind you, and you have no idea and no way of finding out how what you're looking at ahead of you relates to the bigger picture. And that image of reporting a war through a letterbox has stuck with me because it seems to me such a, a good description of what it's like to be on a battlefield.
0: You see a lot, but you don't necessarily understand a lot. That's true. I- that's why I was unembedded in northern Iraq during that war Mm -hmm. Um, you still didn't have the big picture but nobody does and I I think that soldiers feel the same they get told what to do and they go off and they do it but it often seems to them incredibly absurd to have been you know risking one's life to do this action today meanwhile back at the general headquarters they have a fuller picture one hopes and and so that's how that happens maybe somebody listening to this will agree with both of us there's something to be said for experience decades (laughs) and decades and decades and you know a bit of time to reflect about what you've seen and learned and patterns that you can discern that people who live in the academy or who work in think tanks they have their expertise but Perhaps not at the sharp end, and not, not in the same heterodox way that we got our experience. Maybe somebody will come up with the with some money, and we can do this on a more regular basis. That would be good. I humbly ask, Robin. Thank you very, very much. I always like talking to you. And I oh,
1: re- it's great fun, Michael. Great fun. Thank you so much. Well, All let's right. see what happens, huh?
0: Let's see what happens. Before I let you go, dear listener, I want you to hear a voice. Victoria Amelina, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast, when Russia invaded Ukraine, she put aside her burgeoning career as a novelist to document war crimes. And last October in Lviv, I asked her why. It is important for us to maintain this belief in the rule of law, democracy, and justice. So we want to restore justice very much. This is why it is very important for us to document every war crime to make sure we do as best as we can. There is no harder work for the human psyche to endure than forensic investigation of war crimes. The material you work with remains of human beings. The circumstances in which, and methods by which they were murdered by their fellow humans, leave scars. I wanted to know if Amelina was worried about the damage to herself. Somehow it is easier when you're closer to those who suffer. Perhaps it's because I already love these people. This is what is nation, you love strangers, you don't know them, but you already love them because they are your compatriots. Victoria Amelina died July 1st, 2023, of injuries following a missile attack on a pizza restaurant in Kramatorsk, where she was having lunch with a delegation from Colombia. I am certain it was not a random attack. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Thanks for listening.